Hello everyone, it's the Just a Couple of Bagels podcast back again. We're still locked up, still not on a tennis court. And I'm sort of losing the amount of options that I can do. I, c- I can't do anything, Sam. I'm, I'm <laughs> sitting fair, on my top. Cl- we got very close to tennis court, court yesterday. Yes, we the closest did. We've been, closest we've been all year, Sam. <laughs> well, you got to the gate. <laughs> I got to the gate and I was having a tennis racket for the first time this year as well. <laughs> so that was exciting. <laughs> uh, for all the people that don't know, we've branched out and we've made an Instagram account. Yes, we have. Yes. So, so that'll include. That yeah. So please give that a follow. It's no spaces. It's just it's all lowercase. It's just a couple of bagels. Quite nice and simple. Very simple. So you'll get notified we'll leave a on link there. In, yes, we'll leave a we'll link. Leave a link in the description. Uh, what do we put on there? We'll put up notifications when we do one of these. We have little coaching tip videos on there. Yeah. Um, you know, we've on the Australian Open a little bit, so, you know. Supported the Brits while they were that. there. Yeah, while they were there, yeah. <laughs> we got to ground three. Yeah, we did. I mean, Sorry. did, Cameron, did, no, you, well done, mate. did you watch any of that match? Watched highlights. So, um, yeah, I mean... It was always going to be Nadal, wasn't it? But he put up a good fight to him. I mean, second set I wasn't thought great, it was very. I thought you know, it was good. good. Good fight. It's a good fight for Interfair. It would be nice if you clinch one set. But, you know, Nadal was a, was a force to reckon with. But to be honest with you, uh, after, watching, after watching the highlights, I think Djokovic is, is my favourite. Really, even though he's dropped, what, three sets already? Yeah, I just think the way Nadal... I don't know, I wasn't convinced. I think the Djokovic will pull it out. I think the Djokovic does let's say he'll pull it out in the bit when it counts. Hmm. It's like when Usain Bolt used to run his, you know, over 100 metres in the in the qualifiers, you know, in the heats. He was never fully running. He was, he was conserving energy. He wasn't, he was, you know, jogging past the finish line, you know, he was keeping it easy. So if when he got to the final, final race, the final, he had all the energy and he was, he was going to win it easily. I mean, that's what Djokovic is doing now. He's you know he knows he can win these matches, so he's not he's not hundred percent giving it his all. Okay. Yeah, he might drop an odd set, but I don't think he's there's not much concern for him. But then I think when I've watched Rafa, it takes him a week to sort of get up to speed with any slam. Well, that's what I've got when no, watching yeah. him. Except for well, except for the French Open. Oh yeah, he's just there's, there's no point there. in turning up. <laughs> <laughs> Have you managed to watch any more? Because you're obviously still working. Yeah, still working. So, no, I just kind of watch highlights. Sometimes, like in the morning, I'll catch a few games or a match that's on. But I haven't really, you know, I've been able to keep up to date as much as, as, I, as I would like to. But, you know, when the French and all that starts, I'll be much more involved in the, keeping up to date with everything that's going on. Yes. Well, this week's podcast, we have another guest. Very exciting. Guest number two. Guest number two. And guest number two is David Patterson, who we both know very well. We do. Um, yeah. I was, when I was a junior, he ran like loads of competitions around around that I, I, I competed in. So I've known him for a very long time. Well, I'm sure he'll be a very, very good guest to have because he's got big shoes to follow because Yarrick was a very, very good start. This is a very, very good start, yeah. It was a um, very popular start. It was um, basically, yeah, I just asked one question, that was it. We'll <laughs> it was look crazy, forward to it anyway. We'll look forward to yeah. it anyway. 
there's give a Dave, yeah. So Dave's a very, very experienced coach. He's got he's an experienced player. You know, he'll be very knowledgeable in the area and have I'm sure a good story or two to tell us. Well, we look forward and we hope everyone else listening will enjoy it as well. Yes, hundred percent. Right, Dave, can you hear us? I can hear you, Tom. How are you? Hi, Dave. I'm Hi, very Sam. well. Hi. How are you doing cooped up at home? I'm doing fine, Tom. I'm a very busy person, actually, during the lockdown. I'm keeping myself very busy, yeah. Yeah. Out of trouble. Well, trying to. Always trying, trying to keep to. out of trouble, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll get straight into it. Um, did you manage to listen to any of the podcasts with Yarrick on, Dave, to give you a little bit of... I did. Um, yes, it was very interesting. Yarrick came across very well and good insight into life back in Poland and his career and his career path over to this country and uh, what he's done. Very talented uh, individual is Yarrick. Yes, 100%. He definitely is. Well, we'll get straight on to the first part. And this is a bit I didn't know. We'll start off right at the beginning. Okay. Um, day one. <laughs> day one. Um, I didn't know this, that your dad was a tennis coach. Uh, yes, indeed he was. Uh, back in those days, there was very few coaches around. Uh, in fact, when I started coaching 40 years ago, there were very, very few coaches. You probably could count them on the on one hand, how many there were in the whole of the area. Um, but certainly back in my father's day, there was probably only, I would guess, two or three in the, the Lancashire, Cheshire, Northwest area that were professional tennis coaches. Wow. Right, okay. So how did that work yeah. with like local tennis clubs then? So did local tennis did you just turn up to a local tennis club and play and not just not get coached? Or like because obviously like, I imagine if you have one coach, they're only be able to, going to be able to coach in a very small radius. So how did that work out? How did it work out? Sorry, I missed the, the Sorry, the so question. yeah, so just wondering like obviously if there's only like three coaches in the area in the northwest, let's say, how yeah. what did you do to get coaching? Like how like if I was well, a player Coaching just was not a culture back then. You very, right, okay. very, very limited. I mean, clubs uh, just didn't have coaches. Full stop. Back in certainly back in the in my father's day. And as I yeah. as I repeat, when I started coaching uh, around the turn of 1980, more seriously, um, yeah. none of the clubs had coaches so I was a very very busy although I was head coach at Bramall Park and and Alderley Edge um, I was doing work at all the the northeast Cheshire yeah. coaches so Presbury obviously uh, Bramall Queensgate Bramall um, uh, Bramall Lane Woodside you name it I I would yeah. go round and maybe do a um, couple of hours here a couple of hours there but uh, my main, my main base, because it, it was at the time, it was quite a forward-thinking club, Bramall Park, 
um, they they uh, they took me on as their head coach, and we had a very good program. Something probably more along the lines of what you would expect nowadays in uh, in clubs. But uh, well, back in you know back in my father's day, yeah, he did something very similar. Um, went round. And I remember going with him as a uh, as the the ball boy. Um, I mean, you didn't have coaching baskets in those days. He he went off to the to these clubs uh, to coach, and he might have had a a dozen balls. And he relied on me to chase around at the back when I was about sort of seven, eight, yeah. nine years of age, and uh, collect the balls and rush them back to him. And uh, that's right. how he operated. But, you know, you didn't have coaching baskets. In fact, I, once again, I mean, again, because I was one of the, you know, one of the very few coaches around in the late 70s. um, Yeah, I I managed to get hold of uh, a coaching basket that that was very, very new to everybody. Everybody was fascinated on how a coaching basket operated. They couldn't understand how these balls disappeared underneath. I mean, everybody <laughs> sort of takes it for, almost for granted these days. Um, but yeah. they, that's how it was. I still get a few kids who are mesmerised by how a tennis basket works. Yes, yeah, the yeah. youngsters, the, the youngsters <laughs> still do. Yeah. So how did it work? Because I'm not educated enough to know this but as for the coaching education system now we obviously have different levels so we've got level one two three four and five um and it's a very sort of inclusive way of people becoming coaches was it like that when you were becoming a coach when your dad was becoming a coach yeah well well, it was very similar when my my father became a a coach He, he he took uh professional examinations and you became a a registered professional and of course pre-1968 before open tennis um, came then professionals were professionals and they and they had little uh, their own little professional tennis tournaments of course like like the the main tennis players the good tennis players they went off onto a separate pro circuit didn't they most of the top players um the rod lavers the ken rosewells the lou hodes the pancho gonzalez's of this world once they got to a level at the top of the amateur game they went into the pros now at the at the lower level you 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 sort of went into become a a professional tennis coach and uh, that enabled you then to to go out and uh you know, teach people with a degree of, of certification. Obviously, for many, many years, and even in the early years of, of my career, I mean, people could, in a way, go out and coach without any, any certificates. But now they've clamped down much more on that now with everything they've brought into place. You not only have to have a, um, a, a professional coaching award, but you obviously have to have your DBS and your safeguarding and all these sort of other things to be able to coach in clubs. Sure. Would you say like the examinations have got harder over time or easier? They, 
I I think they I think they've gone they've got harder. There were three levels, yeah. uh, level right. one, two, and three, and now you've got five levels. Um, or at every level, it is much more difficult. I mean, to be honest, uh, the level one back in in my day in the in the seventies, yeah, you. you <laughs> You just really needed to turn up and know what end of the racket to hold, and <laughs> virtually you were able yeah. to to pass level one. It and it, it brought in a lot of people that call themselves coaches, which in fact were were not very good at all. They couldn't really play the game. They didn't know much. And I think the the quality and the levels have gone up much more in in recent years, and particularly. I think in the last 10 to 15 years, they, over, they overhauled all the coaching certification back around 2067. And I think that did a lot to raise the bar on coaching qualification. And certainly from the people I know that go through their level fours and fives these days, it's a long haul it's a long haul that they have yeah. to do. I mean, back in the back in the old days, to get your full coaching uh, uh, certificate, you actually went for a two-week residential course at Lillishaw, and it was only held once a year, and it was a, a two-week course. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, it's no wonder then you got put into the world of tennis do you feel because your dad was a coach do you feel that tennis was thrusted upon you or did you just naturally gravitate no, it towards was, it no it was it was thrusted upon me really and um obviously looking back on it i have no regrets at some at sometimes when i was a, a young teen, teenager and i was being dragged out onto the tennis court or or dragged out and going with him to 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 tennis clubs for on um, tennis lessons that he was taking sometimes i would uh feel a bit anti uh anti it but certainly looking back he did me a huge favor because tennis certainly opened up a huge amount of things for me and became my life became not my total career um because i went and studied and i became a um, a physical education teacher. I went to Loughborough Univer uh, University. I did twenty years at teaching in a school, and I and, and I coached as a as a part time basis. In fact, I've never ever been a full time coach. I've always had a a full time sort of salaried job as well. Because when I left teaching after twenty years, I joined the the LTA and uh, an opportunity came up in the mid-90s and I became the county development officer for Cheshire and that was a full-time job but even then I was always doing some coaching um, on the side as it as it were. Very interesting well hmm. that certainly must have been good at his job because you became quite a good junior you won five lancashire county titles at under 16 and under 18 you're ranked in the top top 10 in your uh, in the country at under 18 and yeah. this is 
a very, very good achievement. Um, you reached the quarterfinals of the junior Wimbledon. Well, I had a pretty good junior career, I have to admit. I know, and, and thank you for highlighting those, uh, those stats. And uh, yeah, he started me off and he instilled in me uh, a, a good philosoph a philosophy of, uh, uh, of how to get the ball into court, which has still stayed with me and I try and pass on to others. It's a, it was a different sort of game in those days, as you well know than it is now but the key essence in tennis is you've got to get the ball over the net and into that into that court nowadays it's more about getting it over the net into the court and hitting it with a degree of, of pace um, technology has uh, transformed the game over the years as you know and we we play and you've played you probably know and you know no different to playing with these these rackets, these rackets have evolved over the last 40 years and developed so much more uh, power and the strings have developed and it's just revolutionized the way uh, the game is now played. And particularly the one shot that it has changed dramatically is the forehand. And that's completely different to um, how it was 30 years, 40 years, and certainly 50 years ago. And if, uh, if you met a lot of players of my era, and you probably might have picked up on it when you, if you've ever seen me hitting tennis balls, that I use a, uh, a continental grip, uh, which is a grip that you would just would not ever want any of your pupils to be um, using, and you'd, uh, you'd steer them away from it. But back in, in my day, that was a sort of almost go-to grip and many, many of the players were using it. And the last players to sort of have a semi-continental, um, I mean, McEnroe was a little bit uh, continental, Edberg was, but it's it, during, certainly during the 90s, it was becoming less and less and less. And now you wouldn't see a you wouldn't see a top player using a continental grip. Um, what did you just use that grip? Because obviously you, the serve volley was just so big then. It was just it, correct, Sam. Yeah. yeah, it was it was more serve volley, and they tended tended to use that grip. And it had been, you know, it had been a grip that many of the players you tr you go and see some footage of, uh, uh, you know, Fred Perry, for example, when he was playing. Now, Fred yeah. Perry actually deliberately took time out from playing competitions to develop his continental grip even more so, um, right. which, is, which you, you think is actually very bizarre. Um, but that's the way it was. But coming back to your question, I sort of deviated off your, your, your question and you were highlighting, I think you were asking me about my junior career. Um, and and uh, yes, I, I, was, I was successful um, at county level and I went on and played junior Wimbledon which I have to say was not the junior Wimbledon that we kind of know of today it wasn't the international junior Wimbledon that was held that's held during the Wimbledon championship I wasn't at uh, I wasn't at that level but at the at the time it was basically the national 18s which was always held at the All England Club and we always refer to it as JW, Junior Wimbledon. Right, and it, yeah. was the talk, it was the talking 
it was the talking point of us all during the seas, you know, trying to get, and that was the highlight and the most prestigious thing uh, to to get to for for your your season end. And it came usually um, um, after the county championships in early September. And uh, and it was always just referred to as Junior Wimbledon. But I have to underline, it wasn't the international Junior Wimbledon where players are coming from all over the, the world, as you as you know of today during the championship. Uh, but still, it was, at the time, it was, uh, you know, it's quite a prestigious thing. And I, I was uh, fortunate enough in one year to have a good run and, and ended uh, with uh, a loss to uh, the great Buster Mottram, one of our greatest uh, post-war um, British tennis players. He eventually went on to reach uh, highest ranking number 15 in the world but interestingly he did play in the proper junior Wimbledon in 1971 reached the final and you know who he lost to no Bjorn Borg oh wow in the, fi- in the final of uh, uh, of the junior Wimbledon the proper junior Wimbledon in 71 um uh, Buster Mottram was a great, great clay court player. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was, my favourite surface was, was clay. In other words, we play, I played most of my early tennis on, on shale courts as, the, as there were in those days, a lot of shale courts. All clubs had shale courts that are the closest cousin to clay courts. And um, but Buster Mottram was just supreme on it, and he he uh, took everybody apart. Certainly uh, in this country, uh, in his age group, and I came up against him. And although we had rallies of maybe um, 50, 60 shots, he would always come out on top. But yeah, it was great fun, and he was uh, he was a he was a top player at the time. That's a brilliant story, because I mean you downplayed it a little bit as it wasn't, as you said, the proper junior Wimbledon. But still, it must have been a great privilege to play at Wimbledon. Oh, hugely! I mean, uh, we all dream of every tennis player always dreams of playing at Wimbledon um, in some form or other. Yeah, and although I never achieved the. The, the levels to get there at a, you know to proper Wimbledon at least I had I had many occasions to play at Wimbledon because not only were the national 18 championships held there as I've just described but um, when I was representing Lancashire as a county player we used to have a fixture against uh, the All England Club so I had another opportunity to play there and I also had a um, uh, and other opportunities when we I played for uh, the University of Loughborough team, we played on on a match. I don't know why it was a U called a UAU um, match, and I for some reason we we played at Wimbledon. I can't exactly remember, but we did play, and I've actually played on the grass there as well on some of the you know the uh, the uh, the grass um, at the the back of the Wimbledon, sort of the second tier grass courts but it's yeah it's a great it's a great club and what was also good about it when we went there as juniors back in 
you know, sort of almost 50 years ago now, the, you, you could roam around Wimbledon and there was no security. You could wander onto the centre. I've got this great photograph of uh, me standing um, in my tennis kit, with my tennis racket, on centre court, and a pal of mine took a picture of me from down from the Royal Box, and I've got that. Um, you couldn't do that. There's absolutely no way you no. could even get... You no can't chance. even get through the, the gate without... Even if you go there for a, a, an, any meetings and I occasionally have to go to Wimbledon for uh, this meeting or that meeting but they don't even allow you in without ID now you can't even get past the gate so back in the day when you could just roam around everywhere and the other good thing was we used the we used the uh, changing rooms that the the uh, the top uh, players use so you got all the insight of the the changing rooms and where all the top players were and it was fascinating. Um, and as yeah. you see on the television, you know, Wimbledon, um, they, they don't uh, spare at all on, on the quality of whatever they do. And just everything is just absolutely first class. So you go into the change rooms and there's a little, the, 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 the uh, change room attendant in those days was a guy called Leo, a little chap that used to used to carry the, the the bags and the towels out on finals day you're probably too young to remember it but back in you know sort of maybe 20 20 30 years ago um used to get this the the, the main um uh, uh, changing room attendant coming out and he was called leo and he used to be there and and uh He'd, he'd say, oh, do you want to, you know, do you want a bath, sir? And you'd, I'd go and run a bath for you and this, that, and the other. And it, oh, wow. the, 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 uh, the facility was, was superb, superb. And that, that was on, more so that was on um, representative matches, more so when I was playing for Lancashire against the Orland Club. We didn't really get that so much when, yeah. when we were there as juniors although as I say we could roam around uh, the whole clubhouse and the courts without any security um, have you ever been to Wimbledon uh, out of the Wimbledon fortnight have you been down there no I was going to say that I'd love to actually go down to Wimbledon when it's not so busy because I've been I've been to oh, Wimbledon twice and right. it's obviously well, you, yeah you, you ought to go and it, well if you go into if you go into Wimbledon centre court outside Wimbledon now they've got I mean the security wires you know there's electronic wires yeah. around the court there's cameras there's you couldn't get anywhere close to it um so it's a whole different ball game as yeah many other aspects of life are yeah so security everywhere is now so different different compared to like you know 30 40 years ago so sure but I'd, I'd, it's definitely yeah it's just definitely something i want to go and see one with them when it's not because i can just imagine how different it is when there's like less people there because obviously you don't yeah. you, the experience is different obviously when the tournament's on but you know when there's not many people there i can imagine the atmosphere is just you know quite weird quite different obviously very different oh, but, totally. you know, amazing, yeah. amazing though at the same well, time just you- if you're down in London, you want to sort of maybe take time out and go on one of the Wimbledon tours that they'll, they'll yes. do and yeah, uh, take you around. Have you been in the Wimbledon Museum? Um, I went I went for it slightly. I haven't done it properly, though. No. Just, I, don't know if it, I don't think it was actually the proper Wimbledon Museum. It was, it was open on tournament, 
join the join the competition. I don't know if it was actual. Yeah, well, you, yes, that will, will be the Wimbledon Museum. Okay, yeah, so I didn't full, get on top full of, of full of everything. Everything. It's uh, it's it's very good, very good. Yeah. So you probably could take the Wimbledon Museum in with a Wimbledon tour and have somebody take you around. Yeah. And giving you all the information about Wimbledon. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Hundred percent. Yeah. Something soon we'll have to do, mate. You clearly lived in a much better time, Dave, being able to go around with no security. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, it, that is absolutely fascinating. I didn't expect to have a whole in-depth knowledge on Wimbledon. That was brilliant. Um, what we're going to talk about now is a little bit more towards your coaching career. And there was one question that popped up when you were talking about the Continental Grip. Is there any way that your coaching style or philosophy, however, it has been since when you started coaching to what it is now? How has that developed? How has it progressed? Oh, hugely. Um, it's ever evolving. And over the last 40 years, um, the, uh, the changes I've noticed within myself has, have been immense and, and, and rightly so. If I look back at uh, David Patterson, the tennis coach in 1980, I would, I would cringe. And, uh, uh, and obviously you, you do as you do in life, you try and better yourself and improve yourself and, uh, and learn from others. And, and other coaches were coming on the scene. They were pushing you. There was two, two or three other guys that came on uh, in the 80s, or probably more, there was a group of uh, coaches. You probably know some of them, or not, if, if not all of them. Um, Roger Cal uh, came on, uh, came into the area in the mid mid 80s. We had Jim Edgar starting his coaching career around a similar time. We had Dave Samuel um, uh, working out of um, Match Point, which was the indoor centre, which is uh, do you know where Match Point was? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah which is the total yeah. where Total yeah. Fitness is yes, now. No. That was the main indoor centre. Um, and then there was a coach that's based on the the Wirral, uh, guy called Nick Lawrence. So there was four or five good coaches, and once you once you see other coaches and seeing what they're doing, what they're bringing to the table, then it. It, you have to then look and reflect and think, you know, I must change and up my game or do this. And, oh, that's a good idea. I think in the first podcast, I, I remember you mentioning, uh, Tom, how working at David Lloyd has possibly helped you because you were rubbing shoulders with the likes of Brent Parker and Simon Thorniewell and, uh, and, and maybe uh, one or two others. And that's the way that you've got to try and learn and develop your career. So yes, all the time um, you are trying to make yourself better. And then they came on board with, um, with the, uh, the CPD um, and the courses that you had to take to, to uh, keep your license. I obviously joined uh, the LTA and they put on lots of other courses specifically for us as well um, as LTA personnel. I then went, uh, I went on, I did a short stint as being the, uh, the 
talented performance coordinator and I had the, the, uh, the benefit of going on uh, many, many sessions with the likes of, uh, uh, of Louis Kaya, who, um, again, Yarick mentioned uh, Louis. Now, Louis, a uh, great Canadian uh, coach, um, he did some work with Greg Rizetsky uh, back in his early days. He came over to this country in the mid uh, in the mid noughties, mid to late noughties. He met a he met an English uh, lady, and uh, he decided to come and settle here. He hadn't he didn't really have any work, and there was a uh, there was another. A coach at the time called Brian McFadden and Brian and I, Brian was the, the, the county performance coach, I was the county development officer and uh, we both worked very very closely together and we wanted to, to up the level of, um, of coaching knowledge and we, we set up these um, um, we set up these coaching sessions uh, and brought in people like Louis Kaya to run them and uh, it was there that I think Yarrick mentioned that he he spoke to 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 Louis, and Louis was a great uh, and still is. He's been immensely influential not only in the coaching setup of this country, but also in the players. You know the, the fact that Jamie Murray has done as well as he has in doubles is partly down to to Louis and uh, many other of, of, of the other. British tennis players, particularly in the in the doubles area, but he he, he quietly had influences on Andy Murray as well. Uh, you know, he was quite close with uh, with Judy Murray and Andy Murray. So um, I'm sort of losing track here where I'm going to. What was your question again? <laughs> uh, it was just about your oh my coaching. Oh, that's right. And so all these. All these things are, are, are continually developing your, your, your ideas and your knowledge and the way that you're approaching um, your coaching. So very much totally, you know, totally changing over the years and, and still evolving and still learning. And that's what it's all about, as in life. Well, I'm very glad that you mentioned Nick Lawrence because I was very fortunate on my level three to have him. I think it was... Certainly the first two modules, he was one of the tutors and he was very, very interesting to listen to. The one thing that I took away from him, even when he's coaching coaches, um, how to coach that, I was saying coach too many times. Um, he, he had a way of making everything he said sound very, very interesting. Yes. Yes, he does. Nick has, Nick has got a good way with words. He's got a good way of putting things across and uh and yeah he's he's got a good personality and gets gets into the players and knows what he wants from them and and he gets it from the way his personality comes across and when he first appeared on uh, on a tennis court next to me at match point it was about 19 it was about 1986, I think, that circa 1986. He was, I mean, he was just a whirlwind of, uh, of energy and enthusiasm and quite honestly made me look ridiculously silly. And I thought, my goodness, I have, you know, he, he is one that 
I looked upon and I thought, well, crikey, you know, I certainly I've got to change here. And uh, and the, as I say, on the likes of uh, uh, of Jim Edgar and uh, Roger Cow and Dave Samuel, they all brought something different to the table. And um, and it was good to it was good to to have around. But I'm good. To, I'm pleased to hear that you you en- enjoyed uh, Nick as a as a tutor. I always remember I always remember seeing him take a take a pupil, and he he, he brought the pupil to the net, and uh, and he quickly got hold of the 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 the, uh, the young lad's watch off his wrist and ripped it off. It was one of these elasticated wristbands he was able to do it and he was just making a point that it's important that he want he wanted to take time away from him in other words that's what tennis that's (laughs) what tennis that's what tennis sometimes tennis is all about you're trying to take time away from your opponent and it was just it was just an interesting way of getting his point across and uh you know whipping his his uh his He's oh, I do like that. Stuff. That's very. That's really clever. I like that. Yeah, he was a brilliant character. It, it, yeah, definitely on that course. He was definitely one of the highlights of my level three course. Yes, he would have made it fun. He would have made it interesting. And he's he's always got a little uh, a little joke to go in here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, I think the one thing I took away from him, he always said to me, I always look generally angry at something with my resting face. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> which comes on and I've always I don't think I've ever wondered about this or asked this how did you go from the coaching side into tournament organization of what you're doing now right so um Roger Cowell um was the well many titles but basically he was the northwest regional tennis develop development officer then manager whatever title they had at the time and he came he came into into the northwest in the late 80s and i i struck up a very close friendship with uh, with roger a close personal friendship and he then i joined the lta as I say, in the mid-90s, he was actually my line manager because he was the Northwest Regional Manager. I was, and, he, and his uh, job was uh, to oversee the county development officers. Anyway, in many, many conversations, we both had the same sort of thinking around competition. And at the time, we we realized that there was very little competition to be had around the country. It wasn't that easy. You probably see competition now much more accessible, which it is. But back then, we were very, very keen that um, the competition was the mainstay of our sport because there was no point in just going and hitting um, practice balls, going to have a coaching session, and there was no nothing to go and test our skills. Okay, yes, you had the odd little league matches going on, you know, but there weren't the competitions. And we always sort of used to reflect on other countries. You know, if you were in France in that period, 
every weekend you'd be able to go and access a competition somewhere. So competition was very much a, um, a strong higher priority in my thinking. And when I became County Development Officer, that carried on through in what I, um, what I was also doing as a County Development Officer. It was a broad brief. I mean, a County Development Officer was not only involved in dealing with facilities at clubs, um, competition, um, coaching, also the whole spectrum but competition was was quite a quite a highlight and i tried to bring on more and more competition on board in the uh, mid to late 90s and i did i did so quite successfully i was also quite keen on on knowing more about the rules and becoming a uh, becoming a referee and I decided to take the the APTO uh, referee exam and I took that um, I wasn't refereeing um, much at the time because I was too busy with everything else but when I came to leave the LTA and I came into this so-called semi-retirement which uh, I wanted to just do a, a little bit of coaching and I wanted to do more competition and it started back around 2010 that I got into doing more competition and that's just snowballed over the last decade to what I do now which is sort of 90% competition and I do about 10% coaching so that's, hey, how, I it always, that's yeah. how it came about really see I always remember you from being a junior as being the, the, the competition organizer I think you know I did competition at least like two three times a month and it was always you know you you was always the one like heading it up yes so yeah that's why yeah. the hours well we we were i'll have to you know i have to say that in cheshire we were well ahead of of, of most other counties in how much competition was put on and i used to organize um <clears throat> you know circuits for different age groups we had booklets we had that um because it was a bit pre the 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 um you know everybody getting onto the internet and everything and you know we had booklets and it was more paper entry forms and all this sort of yeah. stuff but it, it 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 started everybody thinking that they needed to incorporate competition there was competition to be had um everywhere it also um, it linked into the mini tennis boom, which started around the millennium, because that's when it really started to kick off big time. And so I started to develop more and more um, mini tennis tournaments, or got, or got all the clubs on board to input uh, dates that they would run sessions. So we had this, we had this uh, plethora of of uh, tournaments all around the county that the the youngsters could go at and these were just low level competitions you know and they weren't even they weren't um uh, they weren't graded at that time you know like we have the grades yeah. sort of five uh, some fours and threes these were just competitions that local clubs uh Presbury were for example putting on a little competition and and kids would come along and hopefully a lot of the, their own uh, club members would, would enter. So that was going on. And we, we became quite noted. A lot of people, um, when we also started to develop more higher level competitions via the LTA, uh, 
again i've got uh, i've got the the main centers the uh, main indoor centers particularly to start putting on competitions and uh, thankfully nowadays i think we've got a level of a level of tournaments that people can think right we can we can go to a tournament virtually every week that's not too far away yeah that's yeah i can't agree yeah i think from yeah all your competitions i think you know it, has, it always gave you something to work towards like as a player because yeah. you know are you saying it's you don't have a match or you don't play a match you don't actually know how good you are no. it's, it's all good it's all good playing well in training but at the end of the day you know going out you know against the competition and then that's where you really find out how good you are exactly you know, that's where the pressure's involved and you know you, you want to win yeah. and you know yeah but um but uh, that's what i yeah i totally agree with what you're saying there um, what I was just thinking is, did, have you found there's been like a change in discipline in players over like over the course of you doing competitions? Like, do you find players are less well behaved in court, or you know, they sometimes when I coach now, I feel like play. Sometimes people just play because their parents are forcing them to be there. Or do you find that in competitions now? Like, players are just sometimes no, no. Okay. Um, I think the 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 uh, the level of discipline has not changed you're always going to find individuals that are have personalities and are theory listen yeah i'll hold my hands up when i was a junior i wasn't the most angel kid on the court you know and i used to fire yeah. up and my dad used to go crazy with me to trying to work out ways of uh of making me behave um and i used to to flare up and over the years the the there've been kids that have meltdowns and um and some of our, 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 our some of our best kids and we've got kids yeah. nowadays that uh, um that we just know when you when they come to tournaments you're going to have trouble it's it's in their dna it's in their personality they 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 they're just going to uh, flare up if something goes wrong um so to generalise, to say it's better or it's worse, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. Certainly, we have. We certainly. I think we have more of a code of conduct now that allows us to discipline the uh, yeah. the players more. I think that's come on board much more in the last uh, you know ten ten years or, or, or so. But you know humans and people yeah. people are people that they're going to they're going to lose it if, if that's their nature yeah that's fair enough very true sort of linked to that question dave um mm -hmm. what about the quality have you seen a change in quality of the players that turn up to your competitions whether that's in mini red mini orange green or full yellow ball standards standards have increased generally like in everything um you look back at uh, the the standard of juniors to generalize the 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 level in my opinion has increased um again if you if you look at if i look at myself and i think i look at juniors that are playing say I don't know, some of the better 14 year unders in my at grade three. And I'm thinking how well they are playing and hitting the ball and, and 
I, I would just struggle to think myself if I was transported um, to play that player when I was sort of 17, 18, uh, you know, I would lose. But then again, you only have to look at old footage of players back in the 60s, even the great the great one of the greatest players of all time and i always considered the greatest of all time rod laver i mean the only player to win um two proper grand slams 62 and 69 you know yeah if you transported him against a federer or a nadal or jokovic today he would probably lose the great um bjorn borg i mean one of the greatest he's got to be in the top you know, top three or four greatest players of all time. But the standards have just improved. But what I'm trying to say is, again, with the juniors, the, you know, the next lot of juniors are pushing the next lot um, on. And I think the general standard is, is, is getting better. Some of these youngsters now are just hitting the ball so hard and so well at a 11, 12 years of age. It's frightening to, to see. Um, but... We have exceptions. I mean, obviously, you go back to a couple of our Cheshire juniors um, back in the 90s, you know, Simon Dixon and Mark Hilton. I don't know whether you remember those two names. Um, Simon Dixon, he's now actually coaching um, down in Birmingham. But Simon was one of the top players in the world at sort of 13, 14 years of age, had wins over the likes of uh, Federer and um, Nalbandian and Hewitt and these sort of guys. Yes, those, oh. those three players went on and to, to great heights. Unfortunately, Simon didn't make that breakthrough, as has happened yeah. with so many good, so many good juniors. You only have to look at the, the winning um, roster of ju proper junior Wimbledon champions you know the international junior Wimbledon champions. you look at the roster you look at the number of players that you recognize that have gone on to become world-class players you know it's it's yeah. the percentage is probably only about 25 percent so many of them just fall by the way to make that transition uh is is, is huge but uh yeah, to sum up, I would say that the standard has uh, generally got much better. It's good to hear. And to be fair, having you on, I think, has upped the standard of this podcast dramatically. That was some very good insight. Okay. Uh, we'll finish with one more question, and this is sort of the part where, because we call this part of the podcast Consulting the Oracle. Dave, you are the Oracle today. Have you got any words of wisdom or advice for young coaches such as me and Sam? I know you alluded to learning off very experienced coaches. Anything else? Well, there's so, there's so much you could add to that. And uh, I probably would need another podcast to give all the the tips and I'll hints take. over the last uh, the last 40 years but I think it's important that you've got to treat it like a a skill or any other skill or profession and think about continually improving yourself and how you do that um, 
and Yarrick, uh, I think, mentioned how he, when he was getting into the coaching, into the tennis coaching back in this, in, in, in this country, that he started to try and absorb as much knowledge as possible, reading, watching, yes, uh, rubbing shoulders with experienced coaches, not to maybe taking everything that you see, but trying to trying to pick the good bits and, and seeing if you can adapt it into your style of coaching. But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more to, to that in order to, to give tips for, for young coaches. I mean, first and foremost, I think hopefully you're, you're passionate about the game uh, and you want to impart that into other people. And a big thing for me is as well, and this is just life generally and whatever you do, but, you know, make sure that you're highly professional. You don't let people down. You return uh, calls to people uh, in, a, in a very timely manner and just, you know, carry yourself um, highly and keep yourself in a, in a top professional state at all times. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dave. Yeah. I'm sure we'll definitely have you on again because that was a very, very good post podcast, if I do say so myself. Oh, well, yeah, that's very yeah, good of you, yeah. Tom. I appreciate it. And uh, look after yourselves and uh, enjoy the you rest of do. your evening. Thank, Thank you, Dave. you very much, Dave. Thanks, guys. Bye. Yes, bye. bye. Well, that comes to the end of another podcast, Sam. Yes, very insightful. A very insightful one. It was indeed. Well, I certainly enjoy that. And I'm guessing, Sam, you enjoyed that as well. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Everything, yeah. It was a very good podcast. Very informative. Right, well, we hope you enjoyed that at home, wherever you are listening. We hope you are at home, because you shouldn't be out anywhere. It's definitely in the <laughs> um, This was the Just a Couple of Bagels podcast. Please do like and subscribe, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. See you guys. Bye.